Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. Today we are on season one, The Texas Killing Fields, episode 20, William Lewis Reese, A Predator in the Community. We are bringing you um, William Lewis Reese today due to recent events and the fact that he has been brought back to Galveston County um, in the last couple days. To face charges. To face charges. Um, we do realize that this is not following our chronological order of timeline, but we do feel it's important to put this information out now. And um, we do have some questions on his cases and on the women that he is being charged with. And um, we do plan to go back to the timeline as we are also waiting on some more information with those cases. Uh, we did have one question though, and that would be, why do we cover cold cases or closed cases so i think for us the reason that we cover cases that are closed or thought to be closed is for a couple of reasons one um putting that information out there some of the community was involved in searching for these victims um and they may not necessarily be family members or follow the cases right along. And so to give them the information that these cases have proceeded along is always good information for them. Um, two, sometimes it's because, you know, they're involved in that Texas killing fields kind of area and it just, it fits with what we're doing. So it kind of gives you a broader view of, of what was happening in this area to cover those closed cases. And lastly, and probably the most important reason is you never know whether or not there are more victims out there that have not been identified as being part of this person's victims. And in the last episode, which is where this question kind of came up, one of the goals there was was really also to present the possibility of Christina or Christie's case, you know, to see if maybe somebody out there would have information that could help identify her. Right. And then in in this case, you know, there is when we start to talk about him and his timeline, for me, he travels quite a bit um, between our state and then the state of Oklahoma. And I think that, you know, maybe there is the possibility of, of people who um, are not identified out there as being a victim of Reese, but that maybe their cases do match. Right. Um, but then a bigger draw with this too is when you talk about the amount of people in this community who went out and searched for these different victims, giving them a place to know where this case is proceeding and going forward with and a, that kind of platform where they can you know keep up to date on what's happening with the case and that kind of thing is is important too so those are some of the reasons that we kind of felt like moving forward was a good idea to go ahead and cover this case and again i do want to cover the timeline a little bit We've been working um, on looking at a couple of cases and there's just not a huge amount of information out there. So we've been trying to gather a little bit more information and we really hoped by skipping ahead a little bit, that might give us a little bit more time to get some of that together too. So, you know, it really fell into place um, with him being brought to Galveston County to go ahead and, and cover this now. 
again, with him being brought back too, we will probably cover him again in future episodes as kind of updates of what's going on with his case. Too. Right. So um, keep that in mind. Uh, but I want to thank everybody for their questions. What we mostly got was, was people who were asking, Hey, you know, are you going to cover, um, Reese, have you covered Reese? You know, those type of questions. And so I think by going through what we're doing today, we're going to answer those questions. That's why we didn't cover what all those questions were. So I think we'll get started. So William Lewis Reese was raised on a farm in Yukon, Oklahoma. He was one of 12 kids. He dropped out of school in the ninth grade in order to become a uh, farrier, which is essentially a guy who takes care of um, shoeing horses and horse feet health, if you're not, not familiar with that. Um, during his childhood, he had spent time in foster homes as a boy, but he was incredibly devoted to his mother. In 1979, he met uh, Judy Fleming, in Arkanode, Oklahoma. They married around the age of 19. She told people that he told her if she did not go out with him, he would shoot himself. It's kind of a predicting statement in light of his future crimes. He was abusive during the marriage. She did leave a couple different times, um, but during the marriage, they did have two children, a boy and a girl. They divorced in 1982 when she filed for divorce. He broke into her house, beat her up, put a gun to her head. Um, he did marry a second time. There's little known about his second marriage. It did also end in divorce. In 1986, he saw a young girl on Interstate 35, <coughs> I'm sorry, in Oklahoma. He pulled off to the side of the road to ask if she was having trouble. She was 19 years old, and when he offered to help, she expected that he would give her a ride. Instead, he pulled into a parking lot, forced her onto the mattress in the truck's sleeper cab. He raped her several times. He drove around with her, assaulting her for a while longer, and then finally allowing her to leave. He was charged with kidnapping, but while he was out on bond, he followed another woman home from a bar and he raped her. He was convicted of both rapes and sentenced to 25 years to um, 25 years. He would only serve 10 years of his prison sentence um, and he was let out in 1996. He was let out um, to Houston where he began construction work, but he also worked as a farrier. So he'd go on to uh, different ranches as that work. What we know about that time is that he um, would return to the Oklahoma area to visit his mother. I haven't been able to track down an exact date of when he was let out um, because we were looking at another case to see whether or not there was some involvement because there was discussion on some message boards about whether or not he could be involved in another case. In that case, that case happened in January of 1996, and they did say that he was in jail at that point in time. So we know that it was past the time of that case. And Unfortunately, I wish I had been able to track down an exact date to give people a better idea. 
we'll continue to kind of work on that and see if that actually comes up. But now we want to talk about Laura Kate Smithers. Laura Kate Smithers was 12 years old. She was the daughter of Bob Smithers and his first wife who died when Laura was an infant. Bob remarried to a lady named Gay and Gay and Bob raised Laura together. They also had a young son. Um, she was an aspiring ballerina who had been accepted into the Houston Ballet Academy. And at the time she was being homeschooled on the morning of April 13th, 1997, Laura wanted to go for a morning jog. She was trying to work on her cardio since she had been accepted to the ballet company. Normally she would ride her bike as her father jogged, but that day he was busy and she decided to go by herself because she was worried that it was going to start to rain and she wasn't going to actually get in a jog. The Smither family lived in Friendswood in a rural area. It was known to be very safe. So they allowed Laura to go on the jog by herself. She never returned home. At the time of her disappearance, there was a building boom going on in Friendswood. The Smithers house was located in an area that was near new housing development. Shortly after she began her morning jog, it did begin to rain. Due to the rain, the foreman of the development decided to let some of the workers go that day as they could not work in the rain. One of the workers that left that day was William Lewis Reese, who was a bulldoze operator. The search for Laurel was larger than any other at the time. Over 6,000 volunteers looked for her. People in the area put their lives on hold for three weeks to aid in the search for Laura. It was decided to close the search operations center so that the family could hold a vigil for Laura and that the community could go back to work. The vigil, during the, it was during the vigil that the Friendswood uh, chief of police received an urgent call and left. Laura's family went home to wait. At that point, they pretty much probably knew kind of a little bit of what was going on. It was her nude body that was found seven day, 17 days after she went missing on April 20th. She was partially nude and decapitated in a pond 10 miles away in Pasadena, Texas. The pond was located between Preston and Crenshaw near Beltway 8. There was a ring found in the mud in the culvert that went under the road into the pond with the initials LKS. This was identified as hers. It was a little bit later before dental records would definitely confirm that it was her body, but it was pretty much a conclusion at that point. She was only wearing socks. At this time, they did take Reese into custody and begin questioning him. They knew because of his job um, that that's why they focused in on him, his job and his criminal record. So in talking to the foreman, they got a list of who was released that day from the job. And then they started to question those people and then obviously kind of looked into Reese's background. They searched the truck at the time. They did find items that they believed tied him to abducting Laura and the friends would police Chief of police believed that they had their man. 
One problem with the Laura Smithers case was an allegation of witness tampering. Harris County pathologist Marilyn Murr, who did the autopsy report on Smithers, claimed that she was asked to change the report. The change was in reference to two hairs that were found on her body, Murr said, came from a black person. She said she was being asked to say that the hairs were contamination and did not come from the crime scene. Murr was later fired from the Harris County uh, Medical Examiner's Office, but this was in a completely unrelated case. Today, hair analysis is considered junk science and has led to many wrongful convictions. But at the time, it was being used as a helpful tool to identify suspects. So for our listeners out there, Gretchen, do you want to give more maybe of a clear definition of what junk science is? Junk science is really kind of anything that's used to um, analysis that's basically used to kind of push an agenda. Um, But that being said, we're not necessarily saying in this case that that was what was going on. People who were trained in this type of science were trained by other people um, and they believed in it. You know, they believed that what they were doing was founded in um, science, that there was analyses that could be done that could identify these types of pairs. And this was really used as a tool at that point in time. It was for a while when it was being used, it was pretty groundbreaking that they could type use that type of tool to identify hair, to say that this hair is very similar to a suspect that they hadn't with DNA coming along, DNA being able to um, actually analyze um, the roots of the hair and really actually match them to an individual suspect. It kind of showed how wrong this type of matching could be right but i don't think that we're saying in any way that that murr was doing that obviously she felt very strongly about the science that that she had found um and so and she would have because she was trained professionally that way right i mean that was very common practice yeah so so um but unfortunately with that the case really didn't go forward at that point in time even though the chief of police was pretty sure that he really actually had a suspect i think there were some other analysis that had gone on that were some fiber analysis that had to do with a blanket found in his car um matched to you know fibers possibly found on her socks um and even that sometimes you know can come back to you know saying that there's possible junk science with that too so you know, um, they just couldn't go forward. One other thing that, you know, I think I'm just going to bullet point real quick is that, um, Laura Smithers is the youngest of Reese's victims that we know of that we know of Mm -hmm. at 12. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a lot out there too, about, um, kind of, you know, types that, you know, serial killers or different killers had different types and that she may not quite fit with his type. To me, I think that a lot of this is more about opportunity than type. There, there are a lot of similarities between some of his other victims, but there, you can also say there are a lot of things that are not similar to them too. Some of his other victims are actually um, taken 
at night. I'm not real sure, you know, that he would have had as much opportunity to like, be like, okay, well, I'm going to wait until I get my exact type. Um, I think it's victim of opportunity. I think he was off for the day of work. He Mm -hmm. snatched her, you know, maybe he was bored, whatever it was, but yeah, had to feel that urge. And I mean, there it was, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, she was just, she was there in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Bob and, and Gay Smithers. So they spent a lot of time at the, at the recovery center. A um, lot of different people helping them figure out how to put this recovery center together to help find their daughter. And they took that later with a mission and they actually founded the Laura K. Smithers Recovery Center, and they also have helped in many, many searches um, for many families to kind of have that manual of how to go about using the public to search. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that has become kind of their um, way of, of honoring their daughter. Right. So, uh, so Sandra, and we're not going to use Sandra's last name. It is everywhere. You can find it. But we really felt like um, that because Sandra is a victim who did not pass away, that it was appropriate not to use her last name. So Sandra, on May 17th, 1997, was on her way to meet a friend after work. She pulled over at the Stop and Go convenience store in Webster, Texas, to call a friend. While on the phone, she noticed a man working on his truck. He was staring at her. She left the store to go to Waffle House, which is really right across the street, to meet her friend. As she's driving there, she hears this sound coming from her van, and she pulls into the parking lot. Before she could even get out of the van, the man who was at the stop-and-go convenience store came up to her, telling her that she had a flat tire. He offered to help. He asked her to get a rag out of the front passenger side of his truck. As she leaned in, he came up behind her with a knife and pushed her into his truck. He then kind of pulled across her and sped off. He drove into the uh, Motel 6 parking lot, which I think kind of speeding off. These, There's no way to speed off right there, honestly. Yeah, I um, mean, you could peel out of the parking lot maybe relatively quickly, but you're pulling out to go back in another entryway right you know because i used to live in that area and the exit to my apartments at that time is in that same gas station parking mm-hmm. lot waffle house is literally right across the street i mean right across the street in the motel six i mean there's no yeah peeling away or you know as he has her in the in the truck like this he's um telling her with using the knife kind of telling her that she needs to take off her pants she's refusing so he leaves the parking lot and enters interstate 45 heading north which 45's the entrance onto 45 is right there also yeah you're talking maybe a quarter mile with mm-hmm. all this i mean it's um she was shaking he's demanding that as he's driving he's demanding that she takes off her pants he's got her feet up with him on the seat um and so she asks if she can take off her shoes first she pulls her legs out of his lap and begins to lean down to remove her shoes 
And at the same time, she's grabbing for that passenger side door that she's kind of leaning up to. He then kind of realizes what she's going to do. And so he grabs her shirt. She jumps and rolls out of the truck. After hitting the ground, she was injured but pulled herself up and ran. She ran toward oncoming traffic. She could hear his truck start, stop and start to back up. She, a woman named Minerva um, stopped saw the woman running towards her she even though she had a child in the car she stopped got out of the car helped uh sandra into her car um she risked her own life really to save another mm -hmm. life she's very much the hero um sandra was hurt they could both see the truck reversing toward them minerva drove back to waffle house when they arrived the webster police were called they met him there with an ambulance you know, I'm surprised. So this was crossing my mind when we were going over this case earlier. You know, where they were, they literally had to get off the interstate, right? Do uh -huh. one of those turnarounds to go all the way back to Waffle House. I'm surprised he didn't like follow them, try to run them off the mm -hmm. side of the road. I mean, I'm really surprised at that point that, you know, it didn't anger him so much to think I'm going to get them all, you know? I mean, you know, yeah. it just seems like that type. Um. I think they were probably lucky that he didn't follow them. Sure. Um, I always found it, I was like, wow, it's um, odd that they that they do do that turnaround to go back to the Waffle House. But at the time, you know, she's explaining to Minerva that she just got kidnapped and that she just wants to go back and, and meet her friend. And I think that's that, you know, um, maybe they should could have stopped somewhere else and, and called. But she knew that her friend should be there meeting her. So mm -hmm. I think for her, that's her getting back to safety, you know? Right. And, uh, and then, you know, being able to call the police from the Waffle House and get them there. I mean, um, she did do that, but. And you know what, the Webster, the police station from Webster's right up the street from that yeah. too. I mean, I'm sure they were there pretty quickly mm -hmm. once they called. And then um, the other thing about, about that is you know at the time minerva's kind of thinking that this is like you know a man and his girlfriend fighting but as soon as you know sandra gets in the car and starts talking about what happened you know she's then starting to realize that this is this is also bigger than what she was thinking at the time so i think maybe she didn't realize at the time how much of a danger she could possibly be in either right well i'm sure the shock was you know yeah. <laughs> real mm -hmm. That night, Sandra described the man who kidnapped her as a white male, five feet, nine inches tall, early thirties, brown hair, beard, mustache, wearing a cowboy sh hat and a short sleeve shirt, blue jeans. Later, while working with a sketch artist, she stated that the beard was more of a stubble. They also went across the street and talked to the clerk who was at the um, stop and go store and the clerk described um, Description was very similar, offering only slight differences. She said that he was wearing a long sleeve shirt. He had gold rimmed glasses and described his pinky ring as a gold nugget. The police, the police um, decide they do some sketches. They get some sketches up in the area. They start to search for them. They, they decide that they want to see if they can get a better description. I think what they're really kind of aiming at is to see if possibly they can get the license plate number. And so they contact another police officer from Alvin to do hypnosis. 
on Sandra and also the clerk from the stop and go. Um, the officer does do hypnosis. As far as we know, nothing more really comes out of, out of the hypnosis, but it makes that police officer very familiar with the case. She's friends with the chief of police in Friendswood. They're kind of hanging out, chit-chatting very casually, having a conversation. And obviously shop talk happens and she's mentioning the case that she's involved with. And he stops her and says, the suspect that you're describing, the truck that you're describing is also the, I believe is, could also be the suspect that I have in the Laura Kate Smithers case as William Lewis Reese. She then suggests that he gets a hold of the Webster Police Department, which of course he does. The police then proceed to um, getting a lineup together. So they do a lineup, um, and actually they do kind of two lineups because they do a lineup with the truck, which is a Ford Dually, and then they also do a lineup with uh, Reese in it. Sandra um, identifies Reese out of the lineup. The shop and go clerk said that Reese looks similar, but she cannot be for sure. But later when she's shown the exact same lineup, she does pick Reese out of the lineup. Um, he was then arrested. When they arrested him, they found a black cowboy hat in his apartment and gold rim glasses. And at the time of his arrest, he was wearing the pinky ring, the mm -hmm. gold nugget pinky ring. At his trial for kidnapping, he claimed that his arrest on kidnapping was due to the fact that the chief of police from Friendswood could not get him on that case, so he would get him on this case. Thus, the trial, he became, um, so this is, he really, like, because this happens and he brings it up in the trial that, you know, he thinks there's a conspiracy theory, the trial also kind of becomes about Smithers because then that case gets, um, brought up in there mm -hmm. and then the smithers also do attend the trial there too um there's some differences in the description of the truck that come out in trial uh sandra said it was automatic it's actually a standard she stated that the seats were black they're actually blue she also stated that there was a mounted cell phone holder but at the time of his arrest there wasn't one and said the truck did not have power window locks or door locks um this was brought up as a pretty big deal kind of in the trial that she couldn't keep this straight to me i don't i don't find this to be all of that um, oh, i mean she's traumatized she's been kidnapped i mean how much are you you're you can't just possibly remember every detail well I and mean, like i told you i'm the last person who could yeah. give anybody a description of anybody and then to think that i would be traumatized and give somebody a description sure. i think that their descriptions were very very good well and then didn't the friends with police come back and say when they searched his car during the smithers case that there was a mounted cell phone holder in his yes in his vehicle at so, that time so it could have been you know knocked off during the struggle of her i mean you don't know at that point and the other thing that really got me about this when you said that it was um you know a standard uh stick shift truck mm -hmm. how is he driving holding her legs shifting this truck you know i mean that just blew my mind that he it's like he's done this too many times that mm -hmm. he's too comfortable doing it you know i wouldn't be able to do all that shifting gears and trying to hold somebody down i don't know blew um, my mind. i think the point that he's done it before yeah um is too comfortable with it. too comfortable with it yeah, yeah. and i mean we 
even at this point, they don't know more of what was going on. They do know that he did kidnap two women in Oklahoma. I mean, that he was convicted of anyway. Um, but um, at this point in time, he, the prosecutor says in his closing statements that Reese is a predator. Well, he says, my co-counsel and I, we've talked about not being able to represent the victims before the fact. It's always after the fact. Well, today, right here and right now, we are representing the next victim because his background tells you that in those uncertain terms, if he ever gets out, there will be a next victim. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, and what's interesting about this is during the time that it took them to investigate Sandra's case, we now know that he was perpetrating on other victims. Yep. So we're going to go into those other victims next. But just so you know, he was, the jury took four hours to con uh, convict him of aggravated kidnapping. He was sentenced to 60 years to life in prison. Um, he went, he does go on to appeal. Uh, his appeal is, is pretty interesting, gives some great information. So we're going to try to post that for anybody on his Facebook page, on our Facebook page. Sorry about that. But his appeal would be denied. So, um, well, if they had just kept him in prison the first on those first charges, and he did his twenty five, maybe none of this would have happened either. Mm -hmm. That's that's what always gets me, you know. So, but then next, what we have is um, we're going to talk about Kelly Cox next. Kelly Cox was a petite, five foot three inch. 120 pound girl with light brown hair and red highlights was medium length down her back green eyes she was a 20 year old university of northern texas student and a mother of a 19 year 19 month old girl she was going for a degree in criminal justice and so that day they were going to um a, a field trip and um so in order to go to the field trip at the uh jail they were not allowed to bring any items with them so she had locked up her purse and her car keys and everything into her car and then she had a hide a key that she kept under the tire so she was going to use the hide a key to get into her car her boyfriend and her the night before had actually used the hide a key to get into the car to kind of try that out and it had worked but that day it didn't work so kelly um went across the street um to the payphone to call her boyfriend at a gas station in denton texas she disappeared on july 15th 1997 by the time her boyfriend arrived 30 minutes later she was gone kelly's friends and family passed out flyers and photographs of her getting them into all the businesses they also raised money for a reward and for the search police believed early on that kelly's case was an abduction one because she seemed like a devoted mother two because she had left all of her money in her bank account over a thousand dollars and she was also an honor student early on there were tips about her being spotted in other area but they investigated those and actually found them not to uh be kelly Kelly's mom would become quite the advocate advocate for her daughter's case, doing her own investigation, attending meetings, having press conferences, and going to um, 
missing persons conferences. At one missing persons con conference, she met with the family of Jessica Kane. Neither family knew at that time that the girls were both killed by the same serial killer. It was April of 2016 when Lewis Reese decided to release some of his secrets. He led police to the pasture in Rochere in Texas near Texas 288 and County Road 51. This was where he buried the body of Kelly Cox. It took a few days of digging in the field and on April 1st, they found remains. And then on April 5th, they identified those remains as Kelly. During the search, Reese actually spoke to Tim Miller, who was helping with the search. And we're not sure exactly what was being said first, but what we know is that Reese said to Miller, there is no way that someone like you could understand someone like me. And that statement always uh, chills me, you know, because it's 100% true. And it's just the self-reflection that he has on the type of person mm -hmm. that he is. It's just like disbelieving to me. I know. Sometimes, you know, so, like you often think that, you know, in their head, they're justifying it somehow. I don't even think he's doing that. I just think he knows that he's a monster. Right. You know, I mean, he just knows that he is. And I think we kind of have to give people a little bit of an idea um, on this that Kelly disappears after Sandra is, is kidnapped. Mm -hmm. But police have not put the connection together yet. Um, so he's not arrested under the kidnapping case as of this time. He's not, a, not out on bail. He's well, yeah, not for another two decades, really. No, you know, on the Sandra Seppa, uh -oh. the Sandra's kidnapping case. So because, um, so they haven't put that together. So he's really just, he's still just out, but his behavior, and this is one of the reasons that we wanted to kind of talk about this case. His behavior is consistent, you know, um, he kidnaps Laura Smithers, then he ki kidnaps Sandra, um, then he kidnaps Cox. And I think in our next episode, we'll probably talk a little bit more about uh, the other women that he kidnaps. Yes. Um.